I'd like us to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. We're just going to look at three verses. Verses 18, 19, and 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll admit to you as I uh, committed this topic this morning and last week and when I get to 1 Corinthians 7 that there is uh, a twinge of awkwardness that I feel. Not an awkwardness with understanding what God's Word is saying, but um, dealing with the issue of sexual immorality is a bit of a complicated topic. I know it raises a lot of emotions and raw nerves for a lot of people. Um, maybe as parents you're sitting here concerned that I'm going to say something too explicit, okay? Um, I try really careful to uh, speak euphemistically, kind of in, in pictures, uh, to help get these truths across. If your child is involved in the public school system, you need to understand something. At a very young age, just prior to where we end junior church, your kids get talks about this topic. And so, preemptively, I think the church has a responsibility before God to address the topic from a biblical perspective. Because it is a prevalent issue in the world that you and I have been called to God, by God, to live a holy life in. It is prevalent. And it is, I think, therefore, a topic that is relevant for us to discuss. A few months ago, a group called the Ellison Research Center put out a survey. And the topic of the survey was, what do Americans believe about the concept of sin? Okay, what do Americans believe about the concept of sin? And the way they defined sin in the survey was this. Something defined as always wrong. Okay, so sin in, in the survey defined as something that is always wrong, which means this. It's wrong for all people, in all settings, and at all times. Okay, it's wrong for everyone, in every location, all the time. That's the definition that they used, and I would argue that that is the biblical definition of sin. It is something that is improper for humanity to do at any time, in any place. Okay? It's just always wrong. That was their definition. Their conclusion was this. America does not have a clear idea of what is sin. Okay? Shocking, right? Mm, not really. Not if you have your eyes open. Here's some illustrations that come out of it. People said that racism, 74% of Americans believe that racism is wrong. Okay? 65% of Americans believe that the use of hard drugs such as heroin and cocaine is wrong. Now think about that. Okay? Only 65% think that that is morally wrong for everyone. Now here's a fascinating one. Adultery. Do you think the number goes up or down? Adultery being unfaithfulness in the context of your marriage. What do you think? Down. It goes up. Okay? Why? Because in the context of people's individual lives, in the context of circumstances that affect people's lives, they have a greater degree of clarity. Why? Because their personal preference about being used or affected by someone else's behavior, now it's wrong. Okay? Now, listen to these then. The shift in morality is shocking. 
only 45% of Americans believe that physical intimacy before marriage is wrong. Only 50% of Americans believe that pornography is inappropriate. Only 52% believe that homosexual behavior is wrong. There has been a seismic shift in the moral fabric of America. We live in a country that's changing. And I think I could safely say that some of these attitudes, these perceptions about sin, are somewhat prevalent in the context where you and I live in northeastern America. That our culture probably would be right here, if not a little further to the left. I think I can safely argue that. The research indicates that only adultery is generally understood to be wrong, which to me is a fascinating revelation of the heart. Our world view, which highly values personal freedom and autonomy, has led to a lack of moral clarity. And so the, the rise or the prevalence of immorality continues. Why? Because our worldview has shifted away from a view that, in, that, that understands the nature and presence of absolutes. We shifted away from that, and the result is that our culture morally is sliding. It, to say something's wrong is offensive. So you shouldn't do that. You don't want to be judgmental. Our culture exalts choice, saying things like this, it's my body and I'll do with it as I like. That has a significant issue or impact on issues like the value of life and the understanding of sexuality. You see, if you say to someone that abortion is wrong, then what you're really trying to do is exercise control over their body and their choices. You're trying to oppress them or at some level to control them. Because Western culture has drifted so far from biblical morality, the church must speak out, even when speaking out requires feeling a little bit awkward about addressing the topics that the Word of God addresses. Now, this passage begins with a clear, very simple command, verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Okay, that is... I was talking with someone recently about interpretation in the Bible. Barbara, you remember we had this discussion, right? Barbara's asking, this is someone newer to our church family, what, what about interpretation? How does that all work? And I, what I said was there are some things that require higher levels of interpretation where you're bringing a number of scriptures together to arrive at a conclusion. The issue of divorce, for instance, takes a little bit more interpretive work. This passage, I think, is, is very plain. Its meaning, its understanding is very clear. Paul says... When you come into contact with immorality, when you are tempted in regards to sexual immorality, he has one response, flee. Same thing that he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful lust. Run. The command is very clear. The idea simply is this. In running, what are you doing? In fleeing. You are distancing yourself from a perceived danger. And the word is in the present tense. Run and don't stop running just keep on running. Make it a habit of your life. And in the world that you and I live in, where the images are prevalent, in TV, on movies, on magazines, go to the grocery store. It is a visual assault on your senses. Constantly avert your eyes from those things that would cause you to fall into a habit that would ultimately dishonor God and degrade your body. My daughter is a perfect illustration of this. I don't know, is Jessica in here? 
Okay, then we can have more fun with this. Uh, no, just kidding. My garage, I don't know why this is the case, okay? But there's a slight bit of moisture on the wall just where the bricks or the cinder blocks dampen up when it rains heavy. My daughter understands this command. That room is like an incubator for, I, I want to call them like crickets, grasshoppers on steroids. They have, I kid you not, their legs extend three times the height of their body. Okay, and when they jump, it's like you wonder where, where is it? Okay, my daughter Jessica, that completely just flips her out. Told, I mean, all you hear is deafening scream and footsteps. I mean, like, run. She lets it rip, and you just, you, you, I know. I, if she's down in the basement, I know one got out of the garage and is in the part where people live. Okay, and she just, she won't go down there by herself. Why? She is afraid of it, them. I actually touched one the other day by mistake. I was picking up a board in it. I had a reaction too. She is afraid of them in a way that alters her behavior. It changes how she relates to that physical space in my house. There's danger in there in her way of thinking. And so she won't go near it. Says she just, they won't hurt you. Just go in and get the hammer for me. No. No. Willful rebellion that I can't punish her for. Okay. What? She understood for her, that's a danger, and what you do when there's a danger is you stay as far away from it. Paul here is saying, flee from sexual immorality, which is the simple definition, sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. That is the biblical definition for what Paul is saying here. The word is porneia. We get our word, root word, pornography from it. Paul is saying, run from it and never stop running. Now here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Is this command a bid on the part of the Apostle Paul to oppress and to control the culture in Corinth. Is what he's really interested in. Oppressing people. Forcing people who have a different opinion to give up their freedom, their choice, so that they can then begin to live their life like they want to. Finally liberated and free. Okay, is that what Paul's doing here? Falco, a French philosopher who was very, very famous in the 90s, most university students in the context of philosophy or uh, literature classes will encounter a man named Falco. Here's what he said, and he has had a massive impact on university in America in terms of morality and truth claims. He said this, all truth claims, particularly about morality, are bids to control. Okay, all truth claims are bids to control. When people in America express a pro-life perspective, what they are really doing is what? From that perspective, what are they doing? They're trying to control your body. And so the movement that rose up in reaction to a pro-life position is what? It's pro... It's not pro-abortion. What is it? It's pro-choice. It's pro-personal autonomy, personal freedom. Okay, that is the mindset that has deeply infected the American culture. It is why when you seek to express biblical morality, the world around you says, you're judging me. What do they really mean? You are trying to control my life. And that, in our culture, is out. We believe in personal autonomy. We believe in America in personal freedom. 
But I had this question. Are signs that say slippery when wet truth claims? Is that true? You're driving down the highway, the government, particularly George Bush, is trying to control you. And that's why that sign's there, right? When you see a flashing sign on the highway, when you see red police lights on the highway, is that a bid to control you? Or is it a bid to warn you of an impending danger, a calamity? Do you see where America is moving? If you try to express a desire to protect someone, what you're really trying to do is to control them, and that's not allowed. So we have drifted towards a, a very amoral culture where you really can't say anything is wrong. Fascinating, however, that when it comes to children, and appropriately so, we have laws that proclaim absolute truth that are intended to control the behavior of people with perverse minds. Is that not true? My question is this. What would Falco say to that? Is that an attempt to control, to suppress? If he's consistent, he has to say yes. He has to say yes. Sadly, he was a man who died of sexually transmitted diseases in a catastrophic and horrific way. A man who found sexual revolution and freedom in the 80s and literally destroyed his life with free sex and drugs because he really believed what he taught. And his life ended as a complete disaster. Why? Because the way of transgressors, God's word says, is hard. God and his word is not successfully ignored. So this morning, let's dive in to this passage of scripture. This very simple command, flee from sexual immorality, which is very simple to understand. And this morning, I want to look at four reasons why we as Christians should obey this command to run when inappropriate sexual activities are possible, or references, or visual things are possible. Why should I as a Christian take this command seriously, as if Paul is throwing up a red sign in front of my life, saying, be very careful. And I want to say this. If Paul says to flee from immorality, then I think what Paul is saying is this. On the other hand, on the flip side, pursue biblical morality. Okay, reject the world's norms, embrace the biblical norms that God's word establishes. Here's the question that comes to my mind. Is he doing it as a bid for control? Is he trying to exercise his theological muscles, practical, moral muscles? Is that what he's doing? And I would argue that that is not the reason. Because as Paul moves on, he doesn't quote from the Old Testament, which he could do. But that's not the approach that he takes. The approach that he takes is, is to list reasons for why... Honoring God's command to flee immorality and to pursue biblical morality is wise and appropriate for every believer. And I just want you to watch these with me. The first reason is found in verse, second half of verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Okay? All other sins are outside the body. He who sins sexually sins against his own body. That's a statement 
that I think merits kind of a sense of warning, of caution. Every other sin is outside. This sin has some kind of deeper effect. What is Paul saying? Number one, of reasons for why we should cling to and pursue biblical morality. Number one is this. It is God's protection of your life. Okay, it is God's protection of your life. It is like the sign at the electrical station that says, danger, high voltage. Is that a welcoming sign? I don't think so. How many of you have ever said, you know, I just want to go climb over the fence and touch something? Okay, you say, no. Why? That sign causes me to want to keep an appropriate distance. It signals that there is danger. Paul is holding up a sign. He is making a truth claim here. Sexual sin will affect your body more deeply, your psyche, your person, your personality, more deeply than any other sin. Now, is he arguing that no other sins injure your body? Is that what Paul's doing here? Is he saying that drunkenness doesn't affect your body? Uh, inhaling substances doesn't affect your body? Is that what Paul's saying? All right. what, what is Paul doing? He's giving a passionate plea, not a logical treatise. Okay, what, he say, what he's arguing is that sexual sin, its tentacles will reach more deeply into your life and have a longer negative impact if you ignore the standard that God's Word establishes. That's the, the basic thrust. He is appealing, not writing a logical treatise. Immorality has far-reaching consequences. Why? Because sexual sin has a particularly strong capacity to what? To injure to wound and to enslave. That's why Paul says, when it is around, you should have one response. And when you heed God's directive, you will experience God's protection. Do you see? And if you ignore God's directive in this regard, you are wreaking havoc in your life, in the life of your future mate, or your current mate, and your kids. And according to last week, your church family and therefore the culture and the world in which God has called you to live. The rebuttal to Paul's statement, flee immorality, it affects your body deeply, is what? Food is for the stomach, if the stomach is for food. Sex is for the body, and the body is for sex. Go back to verses 13 and 14, right? That's the rebuttal. Paul, you're being a little too strong here. Sex is simply biological. And what is Paul arguing? He's saying, no, it is not merely biological. It has deep emotional components that cause God to say that in the event we become one flesh. We become one flesh. Their slogan is flawed. They do not understand the deeper intention of God. They don't understand that sexuality is experienced at a much deeper level. The world scoffs at a statement like this. If you argue in the context of university or the academic world today that sexual sin has a long-term impact on people, here's what you will hear, something like this. Teens will be what? Teens. You can't stop them. So what does our culture try to do? If we can simply eliminate the consequences to violating God's clear command, then everything will be fine. And what are the consequences? They're biological. You can't eliminate the emotional consequences by protection. So even if you eliminate sexually transmitted diseases, and even if you eliminate unwanted pregnancy, have you, 
have you removed the stigma from avoiding this command in Scripture? Or from the directive to pursue biblical morality? The answer is no. There is an emotional component to it that is deep. There is, a, I think in a sense, a spiritual component. Paul is not trying to uh, scare us here. It's not the intention. The intention is to bring protection from the Word of God. Mothers Against Drunk Driving has a very effective tool that they use to challenge teens not to drink. You know what it is? They take a vehicle that has been destroyed in an accident and put it in front of school. And the message is, this is the result. Is that an attempt to scare, to intimidate? Yeah, it is. Is Paul trying to put fear in the heart of the Corinthian believers? I think the answer is clearly yes. He wants them to understand that the command to pursue biblical morality is the means by which God wants to bring protection into your life. And I want to argue this point next. I want to say that that warning is probably the weakest in the list that I'm going to give you. Okay? Observe the world around you. Fear of personal loss does not produce life change. I believe life change can only be produced by the Spirit of God changing someone's heart and life. And so simply giving the rule is not enough. So Paul moves on. Verse 19, here's what he says. Do you not know? And there's a bit of a shock on Paul's part. Don't you realize, Corinthian believers, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Okay, that's strong reason. That's strong motivation to pursue personal purity. What is a temple? A temple is a place of worship. It's a building set aside for a unique function. It is there that people come to meet with God. In the Old Testament, it particularly was called the tabernacle and the temple. There, the people of God would come and experience an encounter with God face to face. That building was set aside for sacred purposes. Here's what God says. Your body is a temple, a dwelling place for God. The pastor that I read to you earlier, that Christ may settle down and be at home in your heart through His Spirit. Why should I pursue biblical morality? Because of God's presence in my life. Because of God's presence, the life of a believer becomes sacred. Jesus talked about being in His disciples and they in Him, that they had a very unique sacred relationship that set them apart from the rest of humanity and calls them to biblical morality. That's the direction in which Paul is moving here. What is he talking about? He's talking about two things. God's personal presence. You are a temple. You are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And God's presence is powerful. But see, I think what Paul is saying to the early church is this. When you participate in sexual sin, you are not alone. Where you go, God goes. You take Him with you into every encounter because of His personal and life-altering presence. The ramifications of that are awesome. You are never alone. You never act independently. The ramifications are awesome. If I participate in sexual sin, I degrade the temple of God. That's what I do. I have been saved to bring glory to God. But if I ignore God's absolutes and do not pursue 
biblical morality, I degrade the temple of God. And I ignore and I lose the benefit of His powerful presence and of this blessing of immediate access to God. I think that's a strong reason to embrace biblical morality. The third reason is found in the rest of that verse, verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God, and you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Remember what I said at the beginning. Truth claims are bid to control. The understanding is that humanity is self-governing, that you have the right to call the shots in your life, to live your life like you want to. This passage says that for Christians, for every born-again believer, that is not the case. It is not your body. It is God's body. And so the third reason for honoring God and pursuing biblical morality is God's purchase of your body. It literally belongs to Him. The terminology is borrowed from the slave market. A master would go into the slave market in the ancient world, purchase a slave out of the ownership of the slave market dealer, and that slave would become the personal property of that slave owner. What is Paul saying? You have been bought with the price. Every believer has been redeemed out of sin and has been brought into a personal relationship with God, and they now have a new master who should govern and run their lives. What is the price? that Jesus Christ paid to make us His child. To change our morality and to clean us up and to make us pure. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll read for you. Verse 17. Since you call on a Father who judges every man's work impartially. And by the way, that's a, there's an inherent warning in these texts that if I ignore God's boundaries, there is a day of judgment that can't be avoided. Okay, when people pledge personal autonomy and profess that they should be self-governing, what are they saying? I have the right to call my own shots and I will not be held accountable for my decision-making. The Bible reacts to that. Since you call on a father who judges every man's work impartially, live your life as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, chosen before the creation of the world, revealed in these times for your benefit. Folks, we're purchased by God, and the price that was paid is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I believe that is the highest reason. I believe that is the greatest motivation to keep this body's physical desires in check because there is a Savior who paid the price for my sin and therefore I owe Him my entire life. I think that's why Paul doesn't, when he says flee immorality, oh, don't you know that the Old Testament says don't commit adultery? I think that's why Paul doesn't do that. Why? The law was never intended to change your life. The purpose of the law was to show you that morally you're out of step and you need a Savior you need someone who can redeem you from the slave market of sin and change your life. And when He does, you owe Him your entire life. Okay, so Paul's argument is, don't you know that you have been purchased by God through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. You see Paul's argument? He's ramping it up. Remember, believers, 
Jesus Christ shed His blood to make you pure and holy as a vessel in His hand. Don't degrade your physical body. This is a greater, greater motivation than the law. You and I have a better reason than just God said not to do it. No. That's not the greatest reason to avoid immorality. The greatest reason is the love of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Try to sin with thoughts of the cross in your mind, brother and sister. Hopefully you can't. Why? Because in that you are remembering, I was purchased by God. He owns my life and is to be glorified. The owner determines use. That's the basic principle that Paul is going after here. The physical body does not belong to us as believers. We do not exercise or maintain final authority over our lives. God does. Therefore, ladies, in terms of dress, what does that mean? If God owns my body, I believe it means this. I believe that your body, your body is not for display that attracts attention to itself or that tempts a brother in Christ to sin with his eyes. I believe that in dating young people, your girlfriend or boyfriend's body belongs to God and is therefore sacred. It is not for your taking. It was purchased by the blood of Christ. And it does not belong to you until you come into the context of marriage. Then God says something absolutely astonishing and wonderful. Here's what he says. Your wife's body belongs to you. And your body belongs to your wife. That is not the case until you enter into the one flesh relationship in the context of marriage. The last thought that I want to deal with is the end of verse 20. And Paul just, I mean, here, here is the ultimate purpose of the Christian life. Therefore, honor God with your body. Okay? The Greek culture, remember, said the body's just a physical thing. It's a corpse to which the spirit is chained. What Paul disagrees with that, doesn't he? Honor God with your body. It has ramifications that are vital and that are important for the Christian experience. So the last reason for pursuing biblical morality is that God has a purpose, a plan for your life, and that is that you would honor Him with it. That is His design. This is the concrete, visible vessel in which people view my life. And we live in a world that wants to say it's just purely biological. You know what Paul says? Paul says it's, if I use the theological word, he says it's doxological. Honor God, worship God, glorify God with your body. Actual meaning of the word honor is this. To cause others to think better of. With your body. Cause others to think better of God than they do today. That's the direct implication of this passage of Scripture. If I participate in sexual immorality, I can guarantee you this. The world around you that doesn't believe in truth claims suddenly will. And here's what they'll say. I thought you were a Christian. I thought you followed Jesus. How, how can you go and do something like that? And all of a sudden, there's total moral clarity, right? Ever had that happen to you? All of a sudden, there's clarity. There's an ability to judge. You can't do that. You say you're a Christian. It's exactly what Paul is saying. You should honor God with your body. Why? It belongs to God. That leads me to an awful possibility. And that is that I can dishonor God with my body. 
I can dishonor God with my body. As I was studying through this, I thought of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis 39. I thought about Paul says, flee immorality, honor God with your body. Why does that sound so familiar? You think back to the Old Testament, you think about a young man named Joseph who is betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery for years. Because of his stellar character and excellent reputation, he just, everywhere he is, he just floats to the top. Potiphar, second in command in Egypt, sees Joseph as a man with incredible administrative capacities. And he puts him in charge of his whole house. He says, Joseph, you take care of everything. Whatever I have, it's yours, without limitation. The Bible tells us in Genesis 39, now Joseph was a well-built and handsome man. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Come to bed with me. Forsake biblical norms. And come and lie with me. Joseph gives a lengthy response, somewhat lengthy response, that the owner has put him in charge of everything and that her, that her husband has demonstrated such love and trust in him. And you would think it would end there. Okay, that's enough, Joseph. That's, that's good, adequate. But here's what he says. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Would Joseph buy into the it's biological argument? No. You know what Joseph is saying? It's doxological. It's about giving glory to God. How I live in this body, what I do with this body, has ramifications that affect God. And so Paul's directive is this. Therefore, honor God in your body and in your spirits because they belong to Him. That's why Paul in Romans 12 once says, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of what? Worship. Folks, if I misuse my body to serve pleasure, I am an idolater. And when I take my body and draw it and attract it by the power of the Spirit of God to biblical morality. God is magnified. I, I, this, let's be very clear on something. The young people within our church family that have taken a stand for biblical morality have attracted the attention of the world around them. That kind of feedback comes to me personally. And the opposite is true. If I am loose morally, it dishonors God. But when I take this God-bought, blood-bought body and use it for the glory of God, it causes people to think better of Him. Folks, try this. Try to practice immorality and witness for the glory of God. I can guarantee you, you will fail. Because the world around you will say this. I don't care what you say. I see how you live. And your life is not attracting me towards God. Folks, we have an incredible privilege, an incredible opportunity to attract glory to God by maintaining sexual purity, by in our marriages being devoted to our wives beyond question. I want to use an illustration from something that happened to me recently. And the individuals here, and you'll, you'll know when I say this. I was uh, 
the discussion was we should try to get together and have a discussion about the Word of God. I didn't express in the context of that meeting that I'd never meet with a lady alone. Okay? But that's my pa. I say to ladies, if you want to meet with me, call my wife and I'll meet you at the house or at the office when someone else is there. That person responded back, appropriately so, saying, it might be better if I get together with one of the ladies in the church. I appreciate that kind of insight. That kind of caution. As Christians, we should be beyond doubt. We shouldn't flirt on the edge. Oh, we'll meet at a restaurant. Because that's a public place. I want to tell you something. If anybody sees me at a restaurant with another female that is not my wife, what's the reaction going to be? Will I raise a question in their mind? I will. What is Paul saying? Passionately pursue biblical morality. Why? Because what you do, the choices you make with your body, with your life, affect the reputation of God. When you face temptation, run. Treat it like crickets on steroids, okay? When you face it, run from it. Avert your eyes. Here's what Job said. I, in the midst of his suffering... Okay, Job 31 and verse 1. Job is wrestling with pain, loss, grief in the midst of it. Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look lustfully upon a young woman. Well, think about that. Where did Job rise with such integrity and with such deep love for God? He protected his heart. He didn't see his body as merely biological. He didn't see his pain as justification for God doing him a favor or God owing him. No. No. He passionately speaks about biblical morality in the midst of his suffering. I find that to be astonishing. And Christian, one of the ramifications that emerges out of this, take care of your body. Don't participate in habits that have a negative impact on your physical body. It belongs to God. In conclusion, let me just give you these three thoughts. When you face temptation to give up biblical morality, run, 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 run. Just run. If you don't, it is a sin that will have lifelong implications that cannot be avoided. Secondly, if you're dating or planning on getting engaged or thinking about dating down the road. Let me just say this to you. Discuss and establish God-honoring physical boundaries early. I can guarantee you something. If you don't, you will cross lines that you should not cross. Care enough about that other individual that you protect their body as sacred property of God Himself. Ask yourself the question, what principles, what boundaries do we need to put in place to ensure that we have a relationship that is without regret and that honors God. Those protective boundaries are not restrictions, they are expressions of love. This will not happen by mistake. It will not happen by mistake. And those boundaries should be intended to keep you from turning on the motor of love, if I can just say it in that way. It is a process. It is not an event. It is a process. And in your dating relationship, you need to be careful that you don't turn the key. Start something that you shouldn't start. Make sure you establish boundaries and establish them early. Be very, very clear and committed to the fact 
that that girl, that guy that you're dating belongs to God. And then this last thought that flows out of it. Only date someone. Only marry someone who is sensitive by the Spirit. And this is so critical. Someone who is sensitive by the Spirit to biblical morality. Let me be very clear. You should not date an unbeliever. Someone that doesn't know the Spirit of God in their heart. Why? They are not sensitive to biblical morality. And if you engage in a relationship with them, the pull, the draw of sexual sin will ensnare you. I promise that. I promise that. It is a secret that will protect your life. Rules, law is not enough. You can study the Old Testament, and here's the lesson. The Ten Commandments did not make Israel a holy nation. And they weren't given for that purpose. Only the Spirit of God can change your heart. If you're wrestling with the world's morality, and it's captivating you and stealing your joy in your life, you need to flee to the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, If we walk by the Spirit, you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. Making a list of rules in your dating will not keep you from sexual sin. It won't. Only your life fully released to the Spirit of God will then be able to keep a list of rules because you have to fight by the Spirit or you will fail. Folks, it is so important that as we come from this text, we realize that God, here's what God's Word says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's in you. You have Him from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. Cause others to think better of God. Cause others to be attracted to the glory and grace of God by the kind of life that you live for Him. You might be here this morning thinking this. Pastor Tim, I've totally failed in this area. In private with someone else. I failed in terms of honoring God's boundaries for sexual morality. What do I do? Well, you have a choice. You have a choice. You can beat yourself up and cause yourself to feel guilty and very badly about your immorality. God will not be impressed. He will not be impressed. What He wants you to do is to flee to Him with your broken heart and say, Lord, I have violated Your Word in this area and the consequences of it are all over my life. And I can't set myself free. I've set up rules. I've set up boundaries. It isn't working. You just continue to beat yourself up and feel guilty and feel good about that. God is not impressed. Why? Because He allowed His Son to be brutally beaten on a cross to eliminate the guilt of your sexual sin. The only place to find forgiveness is at the cross. So if you know Christ and you're playing around the edges, flirting with it, flee to the cross. If you know this morning that you fall short of God's calling in this regard and you don't know Jesus Christ, here is the biblical directive. Flee to the cross with a repentant heart, believing that the blood of Christ is your only hope and be forgiven and receive the grace of God that takes away all of our sin. Please understand, even though Paul says that this area of sin has deeper consequences and deeper, longer, lasting effects, doesn't mean that it cannot be forgiven and overcome for the glory of God. He's protecting you. He indwells you. He purchased you. He has a purpose for your life that the Spirit of God can bring to life. 
if you're willing to trust Him. Let's bow our heads together this morning.